This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, Episode 19. We are talking to artist Catherine Truman. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, Senior Curator Danny Lacey talks to Catherine Truman about her Jam Factory touring exhibition, No Surface Holds. Jam Factory's Icon Series celebrates South Australia's most influential artists. Catherine Truman's practice incorporates contemporary jewellery, objects, digital image and film installation with a focus upon parallels between artistic process and scientific method. Discover how Truman co-founded the Grey Street Workshop, about her residencies overseas and her collaborative work with neuroscientist and poet Professor Ian Gibbons and what it feels like to be recognised as a Jam Factory living icon. Thanks for joining us today, Catherine. Very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I want to start by asking you, what were your creative outlets growing up and how did you first become interested in becoming an artist? You know what, I don't think I thought of doing anything else. So it's hard for me to remember when I first became interested because my mother in particular encouraged me all the way and I was always in my dad's shed borrowing his tools and hearing him yell at me, Catherine, where's the hammer and where's... (laughs) I was always making something and it just continued actually into school and I just followed art and, you know, at that stage art was very much to the forefront in my primary school and high school in particular. Yeah, I had some great art teachers who were very encouraging there. And I just thought the natural thing was to progress on and, you know, be an artist. Mm -hmm. And what was the pathway that took you from high school to then combine the disciplines of both science and art? How did you get to that point through that sort of, I guess, late teens? It wasn't kind of a linear way. In fact, I trained to be an art teacher and I think I taught art in a primary school instead of a high school. I was trained to be an art teacher in a high school and jobs were thin when I finished my training and I think I only did three weeks in a primary school teaching science or something. (laughs) I think we made kites. (laughs) There's a link with electricity somewhere. (laughs) So I wasn't really destined for that vocation. I knew that I really wanted to be an artist and make things full time. And I actually trained to be a contemporary jeweller as well. But in my training to be an art teacher, It was a great time because we would start with one idea and shift it through, translate it through lots of different mediums, you know, sculpture and weaving, and they were really distinct, painting and all sorts of mediums. And that freed up my thinking enormously, and that was my approach and still remains my approach in my practice. I'm very open to trying whatever material and technique will take me through to the concept, you know, will speak very clearly about the concept. So I'm open to also collaborating with people who think along those lines too. And it's a long story about coming to art and science. If you want me to do a shortened version. <laughs> What's the, uh, the shortest version? Shortest version. I was, being a contemporary jeweller, I was, I'm really interested in the body. Also, I used to do very intense carving and came across a Feldenkrais technique which was getting me to look at how I was using my body in my practice because I developed repetitive strain injury. 
And then I looked, started to look at all the anatomical representations and realised I felt uncomfortable looking at them. It was like looking at somebody else's body, not my own. Led me into the history of anatomy, studied a lot of anatomical collections around the world. And then eventually, in 97, I was invited to come to Darwin, the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory, to do a two-month stint there with lots of different scientists and looked at their practices, realised they were very similar to the way I thought and the way I worked. And then I met, after that, a professor of anatomy and histology at Flinders University who I invited myself to observe his anatomy (laughs) class and I was absolutely hooked. I then became completely engaged. He was also a neuroscientist and I've been working with him for a number of years now. So I'm in and out of kind of the educational side of looking at the body, the research labs, teaching side. It's led me through all sorts of different areas and I'm now absolutely engaged with the ophthalmologist, so eyes and vision and perception. Mm. (laughs) It's a big, long story, but it all joins up for me. It makes a lot of sense Mm. to me. Yeah, and we'll be able to touch a little bit more on some of those collaborations and residencies shortly as well. I want to go back to the mid-1980s in Adelaide. You were one of the co-founders, along with Sue Lorraine and Anne Brennan, and partners of Grey Street Workshop which was established in 1985. Can you discuss how this space started and, I guess, the need for it and what it's been able to offer artists over the last 30-odd years? Yeah, it's close to my heart. So, yes, it's still going, actually. And Anne Brennan left, oh, I think she was a member for a few years and she left to go to the art theory department in Canberra. But initially, Anne and I were exhibiting together. We had both a local grant from Arts South Australia and a federal one from the Australia Council, and we combined them to do an exhibition called Thoughts into Flesh, which was very feminist and (laughs) very out there, and it was quite amazing. It was like, you know, latex bodies with pins on them that were actually meant to represent IUD brooches. (laughs) (laughs) I had all sorts of things happening in the show. Anyway, it was very challenging and and we used a huge space to do it. It wasn't a conventional jewellery space. Then we took that show to Melbourne, to the meat market in Melbourne, Blackwood Street Gallery when it was still running. And this is in 1984. And I met Sue Lorraine there and we just found we we're all aligned in our philosophy that jewellery could be adornment, but it could also be a lot more than adornment. It could be highly politicised. And Sue Lorraine had just got a grant as well. And we combined some funding to put together Grey Street Workshop because we we're all really keen to start a workshop together and share that philosophy. And it did feel a need. We then started to invite lots of other people to come and work with us. Julie Blyfield and Leslie Matthews joined as partners. Then Anne left and we all stayed on together for many, many years in various iterations around Adelaide in various workshops. And we opened galleries and we shut galleries and we had exhibitions together. And over the years, we've had well over 100 people come to work with us from anywhere from a day to five years, you know. And we're still finding it's absolutely relevant to be an artist-run initiative at arm's length from the governments, really. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like there was a real need for it at that time and obviously it's been running for so long as well. There continues to be a need for that artist-run model. More um, and more so nowadays, I yeah, think. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk a little bit about your work and the process. So your work is really detailed and quite process-based. How do you transform your initial ideas into actualised objects and outcomes? I guess, does your process alter or adjust according to each specific project? Or do you have a similar sort of working methodology or framework for each project that you go into? You know, it's interesting. I don't feel like I have a set formula. Every time I make something, it feels different. And I'm glad about that. I don't aim to do that. It would be nice to be able to follow a a familiar pathway with work but especially now when I'm if I say for instance I'm I usually initiate residencies within Flinders so in the past I've kind of worked with people very closely and observed them and usually I find that's the best pattern so there is a little bit of a pattern here where I stand back and I call myself a thinking two-way mirror sometimes so I kind of both reflect and respond and draw people in quite close after a while so that you find some level playing field and you get to understand what each other does and the similarities and the dissimilarities and the context. And it takes a bit of time. Sometimes it can take years. Sometimes it's pretty instantaneous. And then if we can discuss our process together, then all sorts of ideas start to arise. I'm not trying to be a pseudoscientist by any means and I don't expect the scientists that I work with to be artists either, but somehow we enter this new realm of being together and produce some exciting work. Sometimes it's invisible, not tangible, but it influences how we each work in our own fields as well. It's a very Mm. exciting way of working. Mm. Yeah, and I think in terms of working collaboratively as well, there's an amazing unknown that you head into that can be unleashed by working with other artists and other professionals. Can you talk a little bit about working collaboratively with neuroscientist and poet Professor Ian Gibbons? You've worked with him for many years, over since 10 2007 years now. Yeah. actually, so yeah. it's 11 years. Yeah. He's retired in 2014. Uh, he's an emeritus professor, but he's still continuing on his artwork. He's actually a poet. He makes video poetry now and he's winning prizes all around the world for that. And we do collaborate now and again. In fact, the last time we collaborated was on a piece in No Surface Holds. It's the 2020 scope. It's collaborated with him and another artist who I've worked with before is Deb Jones, who's a glass artist. But working with Ian has always been a great pleasure. He's got a very, very inquiring mind and he's also very open to discussing what he does and what I do on a kind of very intimate level and so we're always both surprised about what we come up with and sometimes it's just about the journey it's just about the discussion I used to kind of hang about the neuroscience lab all the time and (laughs) and throw ideas at him and get really excited and his teaching changed enormously, so he influenced me a great deal with how I thought about the body, but his teaching changed so much through the time that I was there. I think one of the initial questions was, you know, whose body are you teaching 
to medical students? What body are they learning about? Is it a generic body or is it their own body or is it that of the teachers? And he became far more conscious about how he was using his own body in his teaching and directed the students to do the same, to use their own bodies as resources and to enjoy it a bit more because there's so much information about the body to get into their brains, you know, to be doctors. I don't know how they do it. Mm. I'd love to hear about some of the residencies that you've undertaken and the opportunities that these have allowed your practice. In 1990, you were awarded a Japan-South Australia Cultural Exchange Scholarship to go to Tokyo to study with contemporary Netsuke carvers. And more recently, you've undertaken research at the Microscopy... Microscopy. <laughs> Microscopy. Suite at Flinders University. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about those residencies mm. or some of those residencies you've been involved in? Well, in, in 1990, it was my first overseas trip. I was really quite young and applied for this scholarship to go and study carving with four different Netsuke carvers from Tokyo and Kyoto. And one of the carvers was the main carver and he oversaw all the study that I did. And it was an extraordinary experience, you know. And I used to take a translator with me. Each time I'd start with a new carver, I'd, I enlisted the help of some students from an art university nearby and they were really thrilled to come and meet these basically national living treasures actually in Japan and translate for me the first few days and then they'd leave me and you didn't really need English after that. Mm. <laughs> so I learned a great deal through working there, particularly about the cultural differences, the freedoms that we have as artists in Australia compared to traditional carvers in Japan. The choices we have are vastly different. The first day that I was working with Bishu Saito, one of the main carvers, there was a knock at the door and it was a journalist and a photographer from Japan's only kind of green <laughs> magazine to interview me about my thoughts on using ivory for carving and it was amazing you know I was put on the spot right from the word go and had to explain why I wasn't going to use elephant ivory and I wasn't going to use all the banned rainforest timbers that the dealers were importing since the ban on ivory had been imposed on Japan and it really made me crystallise my practice as a white Australian carver who had no background in the traditions of carving and I was working with fourth generation carvers in Japan. Such a different attitude to design and technique and materials and it was a fantastic experience. From there the other one you mentioned was working the microscopy suite. That arose from actually becoming quite interested in the use of microscopes in research at Flinders and I went through a lot of different departments there just watching people's process and how they needed microscopes to augment their sight. You can't study something if you can't see it really either in art or science. It's really important. We don't think about these things and the, the scale that you see things at is also very, very important. And you have to design the instrument to see something very particular at a particular point in time. So it opened up my thinking in terms of how much we don't know and that both art and science are about that endeavour. It's not that we're looking for absolute answers, but the endeavour is really important how you approach that. So... In 2013, Ian Gibbons said to me, oh, look, we've got these microscopes, they're about to be decommissioned, you know, they're, 
they were on the cusp of analog and digital imaging techniques. So because they were analog, they were no longer useful. These were million dollar microscopes. It happens all the time. And he said, I think, you know, we should get a bunch of artists together and let's respond to these machines. You know, let's see what we can elicit from these hunks of machinery that are highly engineered. And so we got some funding and through Flinders University, we hired what was an old eucalyptus distillery on the banks of the Torrens. (laughs) It was part of a sort of an enclave of Adelaide University buildings. And we hired that for a year. It even had the original eucalyptus vats in them. So, you know, every time I smell eucalyptus, I think of microscopes now. (laughs) And we proceeded to respond to those microscopes. Ian always wanted to take them apart. So there was piles of nuts and bolts and lenses and God knows what everywhere. We had to tell him to stop because we needed to understand them as a whole first. (laughs) But anyway, I learned a great deal through that. And as a result, I asked to do a residency within the microscopy suite at Flinders University and I became more familiar with the different kinds of microscopes but also the rituals involved in preparing specimens in order to use the microscopes and there are two pieces in this show, No Surface Holds, in particular that arose from that work, the ritualised process of dividing cells, of curing, of making cells and all the processes involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this really amazing exhibition, No Surface Holds, is a major survey of your work over the past 20 years, presented as part of the Jam Factory's Icon series. What does it feel like to be recognised as an icon within the industry and for you to actually see all of these projects of yours brought together in this exhibition? It's so exciting. It's, you know, rare that you get a chance to reflect back on your practice in this way. I have been practising for, it's going on for 40 years now, so this is kind of half my career's worth of work, working in this particular field of art and science. And it's an extraordinary feeling to be able to put the work together and along with Margaret Hancock, the curator of the exhibition, to actually begin to see those threads that become quite obvious when you look at them all together that run through all the work, you know, my concerns that are reiterated but just said in different ways, sometimes a little more sophisticated and sometimes a little less sophisticated. So it's an extraordinary experience to be able to do that. Mm. And it's visually, it's like you're saying, it's a remarkably tight exhibition in that it does, there are those threads that run through the whole show. It actually looks very contemporary, like it has been put together over the last Mm. couple of years, really. Yeah, 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 Yeah. exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. There are sort of key things in there, and it's a little bit what I've been talking to you about, and that is that unknowing moves you forward. Unknowing something, and I mean not knowing something, pondering something, is an incredible catalyst for creativity in both science and art. And that's what that show is so much about, you know. So it's about those things. But it's also about the fact that if you want to see something in detail, you have to devise something to enable you to see. And I'm talking quite metaphorically and kind of practically as well in science. So those two kind of really major but loose themes are what drive that entire exhibition. Mm. 
Finally, what advice would you give to artists just starting out in their practice? Oh, hold on to your passion no matter what. And this is, might be a cliche, but for me it's absolutely true. Listen to your heart, not always your head. <laughs> <laughs> it's really important nowadays. And you have to kind of learn a pathway through to believe in yourself and to always reflect on what you've done in the past, what you're doing at present and how that's going to influence your future in terms of the arts. Hang in there. Mm. It's worth it. Lovely advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations on such a beautiful exhibition, No Surface Holds. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to episode 19 of our conversation series. Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is the region's major cultural facility and is supported by Mornington Peninsula Shire and other partners. Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. Our 2018 podcast program is supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. 